wanted to write a book that was a roadmap for the United States about how we go from where we are now, which has uh, created a climate emergency and a public health emergency, uh, an impoverishment of rural America. Uh, how do we get from where we are now, which I call a degenerative society, to a regenerative state? Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, the director of Cambridge Forum. So today I invite you to join us as we escape to enjoy the beauty of nature and relish all the wonders that the natural environment can offer us in terms of birdsong, plants and wildlife. So first, let me begin by introducing Ronnie Cummings. Ronnie's the founder and director of the Organic Consumers Association. He's been a lifelong activist for many causes, but definitely the organic cause. And he's part of Regeneration International. Ronnie, I know you're joining us from Via Organica, which is a farm, a training farm in Mexico. You've recently wrote a book called Grassroots Rising. And you said you wrote it because nobody else was doing it. So can you tell us a bit about why you wrote it and why you felt it was the time to call to action? Well, there's lots of books out there about the climate crisis, but almost all of them talk almost exclusively in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by converting to alternative energy and energy conservation. And of course, those are very important. On the other hand, there's lots of books out there about regenerative agriculture. Unfortunately, typically those focus on individual farms and ranches and don't talk much about the big picture. So I wanted to write a book that was a roadmap for the United States about how we go from where we are now, which has uh, created a climate emergency and a public health emergency, environmental emergency, uh, an impoverishment of rural America, you know, sharp decrease in biodiversity, uh, how do we get from where we are now, which I call a degenerative society, to a regenerative state? Uh, and if we really uh, want to have high goals, which we need to have for the rest of the world to be inspired, uh, I think we should adopt the Green New Deal as supported by 100 or so members of Congress. And basically, we're saying that we can reach zero net emissions in 10 years if we will combine the good trends we already have moving to alternative energy and energy conservation with a massive drawdown of carbon from the atmosphere and putting it back where it used to be in our trees, in our plants, in our soil, in our grasslands. Uh, and what I lay out in the final chapter of the book is how we take this 1.9 million acres of um, excuse me, 1.9 billion acres of farmland in the United States, pasture land, crop land, forests as well. How we can go from sequestering 10% or 11% of the emissions we're putting up now uh, into sequestering uh, half of it. Uh, and if we do this, if we increase uh, the levels of photosynthesis and regenerative land management, of fourfold or so over the next 10 years while we reduce uh, emissions by 50%, we can reach a zero net emissions by 2030. That means that what we'll still be putting up in terms of emissions will be drawing down. Uh, and of course, scientists tell us that it's not enough to just reach zero net emissions. 
beyond the year 2030, we need to start drawing down more carbon uh, and greenhouse gases than we're actually putting up there if we want to gradually restabilize the climate over time. So the, the good news is that the practices that we need in order to move to alternative energy and to move to regenerative uh, food farming and land use practices, they already exist. We don't need to uh, reinvent the wheel. We already have in every state, in every county in the United States, examples of best practices in terms of regenerative agriculture. Uh, regenerative agriculture is simply the next stage of organic, where we focus on soil health and focus on carbon sequestration, uh, as well as not using the chemicals and fertilizers. The, how are we going to make these regenerative organic practices the norm? How are we gonna make regenerative forestry and ecosystem restoration practices the norm? We already know how to reforest, you know, in a way that's species appropriate, in a way that works. We already know how to restore wetlands and grasslands. We know how to restore marine ecosystems. The problem is that these are the alternative. These are the niche practices now, not the norm. So four things are gonna be required, and I think we already see these developing. One of them is consumer and voter awareness. If people don't understand that there's hope that we can turn things around and make, not only fix the climate, but fix our public health catastrophe, fix the, the uh, economic situation in rural areas, bring urban and rural people together, restore biodiversity and habitat, uh, once you get people to see that we can do it, uh, the next stage is to call attention to the best practices because we know what they are, but the general public uh, tends to be depressed, you know, and not hopeful that we can do this. So we need to take these best practices, shine the spotlight on them, magnify them, get everyone aware of this. But the third point, which is key, we got to have, we got to change public policy. We gotta change political power. Right now, we, we do have subsidies for food farming and land use. The problem is they're subsidizing degenerative practices. We're paying farmers and ranchers to farm and ranch the wrong way. You know, We're subsidizing the production of food that is so low in nutrients that 40% of Americans have chronic diseases and many of them, when they come into contact with this coronavirus, die. These pre-existing conditions we hear so much about uh, that cause people to have to go to the hospital and that cause them to have to go into ventilators where most of them die. These pre-existing conditions, these aren't acts of God. You know, these are functions of your diet, your environment, the stress in your life, and we can have a healthier population. We didn't used to have 40% of our population with chronic diseases like we did now. When my grandparents uh, operated a family organic farm in East Texas in the 50s and 60s, a lot of these chronic diseases, no one had even heard of these before. So we must change policy. It's gonna cost hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 10 years to change our degenerative food farming and land use system into one that is regenerative. But look at what, you know, we're spending trillions now 
you know, trying to make up for the degenerative practices that have led us to this point. Uh, we can afford to do it and we will do it. The fourth factor, which is extremely important, uh, we can't count on the government for $840 billion a year as called for in the Green New Deal plan. We need our private money and our public money working together. And there's plenty of money. I mean, Americans in our savings plans, in our retirement plans, we have $25 trillion, you know, right now. We have trillions of dollars in the stock market invested in things like fossil fuels and industrial agriculture, industrial timber uh, extraction and so on. There's plenty of money to do it if we have the political will. So I'll just conclude by saying that the solution to our catastrophe, our catastrophic times that we're facing, and believe me, this pandemic is just a, a small dress rehearsal for climate catastrophe, but the solutions are at hand. They're as close as the knives and forks in our hand, as John pointed out. We've got to vote for regenerative food and farming and land use every time we pull out our wallet, every time we go to the store, every time we think about what we're going to eat. And the solution is right under our feet. It's in the incredible universe of uh, microorganisms and biology that are down there. I mean, once upon a time, the earth had three to 8% carbon organic matter on the average in our soils. Right now we have 1%. Well, where did that other two to 7% of carbon organic matter that used to be in our soils and our biota go? It went up in the atmosphere, it went into the oceans. We can get it back down, uh, but we can only get it back down as part of a society-wide change that is gonna take us Big changes, not little changes, but we can do all this. And this is not a partisan issue. You know, everyone in America is concerned about health. Everyone in America is starting to realize that we have a climate catastrophe that we must solve. Everyone in America nearly is disenchanted with our 519,000 elected and appointed public officials at the local, county, state, and federal level. All right, you look at all the polls, all of us want the same thing. All of us want our children and our grandchildren to grow up in a world that is livable, that is not catastrophic. And I'll close by saying, however, if we reach this regenerative uh, goal in the United States, this is still got, not gonna be enough to solve the global crises we're facing. This is a global problem with global solutions. And when you look at regenerative farming and ranching and land use, it's simply much easier and much faster to sequester a lot of carbon in the areas around the equator and in the global south, and also the semi-arid and arid areas of the world, which are 40% of our landscape, are so degraded that when you apply regenerative practices, you really have a, uh, a rapid increase in carbon. And so we're all in this together. We can all get out of this together. I hope people will take a look at my book, Grassroots Rising, Call to Action on Climate, Farming, Food, and a Green New Deal. If you're interested in a specific roadmap 
on what we can here do in the United States with our 1.9 billion acres of pasture land and range land and, and uh, forest land, urban land, uh, park lands. Thank you. A real call to action on many fronts. One of the people that has actually taken your words to heart is going to join us next. And Michael Chisiano um, from Long Island has got a farm called Naked Farm. And he transitioned from being a Brooklyn businessman. Uh, and now he's a biointensive farmer. So Michael, if you could tell us a bit about why you did such a dramatic change of career and how you fell in love with working the land and what that learning curve was like. Well, I am a leisurely cigar smoker. So we built a home in Orient on the Sound and the Connecticut River is only eight miles away. So I was reading an article in Cigar Aficionado magazine and it stated how a fine cigar was made. And they said that the best wrapper leaves of a cigar were grown in the Connecticut River Valley. And there I am staring at the Connecticut River right across the sound. So right away I started thinking, why isn't that done on Long Island? We're so close. It just started getting the wheel spinning. I started researching it and um, <clears throat> started getting very interested in it. Hooked up with one of the researchers, uh, the research scientists up in the Connecticut River Valley. Uh, took a trip up there, saw the farms, very impressed. Got to meet one of the farmers. <clears throat> I said, I asked, could you please let me know when you're starting to farm. I'd like to come up and check it out. So they did. And I actually worked with the farmers in the Connecticut River Valley for four years, labor in exchange for knowledge. I was so taken back by the farming industry. Once I got dirt in my boots, I couldn't get away from it. It was the thing. I mean, I started late in life, uh, probably, you know, 55 years old, a little late, but, um, I was very excited about it. I brought it down to Orient and I started speaking to the farmers out on the east end of Long Island and nobody really knew much about it. So one of the farmers was good enough to actually let me do a trial on his land. So I grew three acres of tobacco, came out beautifully, um, sold it to AJ Fernandez in Nicaragua. Um, I really wanted to continue doing that because it's just a very unique thing. But unfortunately, dealing with the people in Nicaragua from a business standpoint of view wasn't pleasurable. And at my age, I didn't need that anymore because I dealt with that in the city. So I still needed to farm. I couldn't get it out of my system. I had to farm. So I just checked out alternative farming styles online and this one fellow popped up. His name was J.M. Fortier. He's uh, from Canada. And he started speaking about this biointensive way of farming. Um, bio meaning we use the biology of the soil in order to grow the best quality crop. Intensive means the spacing of the crop. It's based on a 30 inch wide permanent bed system. And what you do is you constantly add compost. So you're always adding to the land. You're never taking away from the land. I worked with a conventional farmer out here, actually the fellow who let me use his land to grow the tobacco. 
I worked with him for five years. And he, 120 acre farm, huge machinery, uh, huge discs. So every time we prepped the field, we'd go into that field with a 20 foot disc and just rip the soil apart. And you go up and down and do five acres of that and you turn around and there was not one bit of anything alive in that soil. The only way that you were going to grow crop in that soil was to add man-made fertilizer and lots of it. I mean, it's just not the way to do it. It really isn't. Anyway, the biointensive method is totally opposite. First of all, you need organic matter to grow any type of vegetable. You need, well, to grow quality vegetable. You need all that biology in the soil to help with that. And you have to add to the soil uh, to condition the soil. What happens is, uh, on these 30 inch beds, we never step on the bed. So the soil never gets compacted. So you just keep putting compost on these beds and you plant because you don't compact the roots grow down. They don't compete on a horizontal with the plants next to them. So I could on a 30 inch wide bed, I could grow five rows of radishes, one inch apart, 45 feet long. I could generate 200 bunches of radishes out of a 30 inch by 45 foot long bed. I have 16 of those beds. That's what I started out with last season. I increased this season to 25. My little farm could produce what a conventional farm could produce in five acres on a 10th of an acre. And this is the way it should be done. There is uh, a farm called Steadfast Farm in Mesa, Arizona. It's the first of its kind. They're calling it an agri-hood. It's a housing development and smack dab in the middle of this housing development, they put a biointensive farm. This farm is feeding that whole community along with the restaurants in the community and the stores in the community. So this regenerative way of farming should catch on and it should be the way that it's done. There's also another one that just started in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's called Raleigh City Farm. Same basic principle. Last year, I tried it because uh, we live in a city very close to Greenport, New York, which is, it's regenerifying a lot of restaurants. So I figured, let me strike while the iron's hot, uh, set up a little farm stand. I did really well. Uh, I couldn't keep up with the demand. So actually, my, my passion is really, we live in an agricultural area with all these farms that are struggling, 120 acre farms, 150 acre farms. And these sons and daughters of these farmers who saw their mothers and fathers struggle all their lives trying to keep up with this, really don't want any part of it anymore. My thing is to try to teach these high school kids that it can be done. Um, John Martin Fortier farms an acre and a half, and he does well over $100,000 a year in sales. There's a fellow called Connor Crickmore, who's based out of uh, Claryville, New York. He's on an acre and a third, and he does $300,000 a year in sales. There's no machinery. Everything's basically done by hand. I have one two-wheel walk-behind BCS tractor that I use just to tilt. That's all I use it for. That's an Italian-made 
contracted just for this 30 inch wide permabed system. And basically this, this is the real way we should be eating. My vegetables, uh, because of the biointensive method, the color is incredible. Uh, it's, it's just, it's so different than what you're used to buying from a regular supermarket. And, you know, being from the city, I'm familiar with the Bronx terminal market and places like that where produce gets shipped in and sits in a refrigerated trailer two weeks before it gets to the produce stores. I mean, it's, it's really doesn't make sense. And because land is so expensive on Long Island, you could farm in a very small space. You know, it's, it's really the way it should be done. So Michael, on your farm, for example, uh, it sounds like it's very densely populated and I can attest to the scale and size of these greens that he produces. They are just dazzling. They look like they're on steroids. These, uh, I had your radish greens, I think, which I'd yeah. never had before, mm -hmm. uh, which are amazing. So are you, are you kind and cooperative with the habitat for the wildlife around you or how do you go, go along with that? Do you plant one for you and one for you and one for them? And <laughs> <laughs> no, well, basically uh, we have a, we have an issue with deer here. You know, I, I have a, a deer fence up, um, but basically because my footprint is so small, uh, all the inhabitants just go about their business and uh, you know, everything seems to be working out well. And do you attract birds? Do you find there's a lot of birds and wildlife around? I mean, there is plenty of wildlife. Yes, absolutely. Uh, bees, um, you know, beneficial insects. Uh, actually, we bought a, the lavender farm, um, and he has pollinating bees. So I actually planted uh, some wildflowers to attract bees, and they come past and pollinate my vegetables. So mm. it, all, it all works well. Ronnie, well, you kind of coming? Yeah, one of the things is uh, our farm and our, our research farm in Mexico is certified organic, but we have higher aspirations. So we're in the process of being certified biodynamic. And one of the things I love about biodynamic organic, it's the highest form of certification, for example, under the USDA organic, they require you to leave at least 10% of your farm wild, you know, and so we have it's about 14% of our farm. It's called the Monte or the mountain, you know, in, uh, in Spanish. But that area we leave, uh, we leave alone. And occasionally the, you know, we can have the goats and sheep just make a pass through there, but not, not very much. Uh, and that, you just really notice, we've got such beautiful birds, you know, in our area that people come out just for bird watching. Uh, and it also helps, you know, the bees and the other animals uh, uh, or the other insects, beneficial insects, uh, thrive. So I think we need to we need to have that wildness as part of our life wherever we can. And I think in cities, uh, in the Victory Gardens in the United States, right before I was born in 1945, we were growing 42 percent of the nation's vegetables in our cities. And Great Britain at the time was growing 28% of theirs. So there's a billion people in the world out of seven and a half billion who live in urban areas who are growing at least a little bit of their food. Maybe they have a few chickens, they have a garden. And our goal should be to get the urban areas 
as self-sufficient as we can. It's not just enough to transform 65 million acres of lawn in America uh, to gardens. We need to plant you know, millions and millions of trees in our urban areas as well. And while we're doing it, why don't we plant trees that the birds like, you know, that or that humans, you know, can eat fruit trees or nut trees. I know in the upper Midwest, there's a huge renaissance now of hazelnuts and of elderberries. These are the most incredible perennial crops that you can grow in combination with annual crops, you know, that will uh, transform the environment, sequester the carbon, and produce extremely valuable, you know, instead of finishing pigs, fattening them up on corn, why aren't we fattening them up on hazelnuts? You know, where then the farmer can get like an Italian farmer, you can get three or four times as much for the meat. Why is that? Because it's better. It tastes better. And the pigs are happy. You know, <laughs> animals, all of our animals are free range. It's just like, I think it's extremely important that we get the animals back on the land, that we have a relationship with the animals. These are precious beings. I mean, pick up a little goat, pick up a little sheep. You know, these things are incredible. Pick up a chicken, you know, you look in their eyes, they are smart beings. We are sacrificing them for our survival, you know, but we should be reverent about that. And remember, we need to remember uh, when we're dead, the little animals are going to eat us, you know. So let's not hold it against the uh, soil microorganisms that they're going to turn our corpses, if we give them a chance, uh, into something very useful. So, Okay, someone's uh, got a typed in a question. Tom Wilde, how do you reach today's struggling farmers to convince them sustainable biointensive farming is both viable and profitable? That is a good question. Uh, being that um, I am around conventional farmers and I did explain the biointensive method to them, they say, that's impossible. It can't be. I just showed them my radishes and I go, how could it be impossible? Um, I don't know if it's being pushed. It's, um, it is rolling. I know that it's getting more and more popular. I, is it being taught in universities? I don't think so. Maybe. but. Um, Hopefully that's where it's all going to go. But um, the old time farmers, they're kind of uh, tunnel visioned people from what I experienced. Uh, the uh, farmer that I worked with, his family was farming out here for 400 years. And um, they do a lot of things the same way they did a long time ago. So they're very... Um, Fixed. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's hard to uh, show them something else basically, but hopefully the newer generation will catch on. Okay, well, someone's typed in. There's a lot of interesting broad stroke, <laughs> large format information here. What can an individual consumer do right now, aside from dietary change, to further progressive change? Do you see people changing in the supermarkets where you're supplying your greens? Uh, that's, well, that's 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 a rough one um people usually uh you know when they're shopping they just go in get rid of what they want and get out i mean 
you come to my farm stand, you see what I have. You know, that's what you need. More people come into farm stands and local farm stands, uh, organic farm stands, rather than, you know, rushing in a supermarket and rushing out of a supermarket, taking a little more time, you know, thinking about what you're going to eat. I just want to thank you all for um, such energy and passion and information about your farming. Thank you for listening to Cambridge Forum today with my guest, Ronnie Cummings author of Grassroots Rising, and bio-intensive farmer, Michael Chisano. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter. It is also sponsored by the Lowell Institute, the Massachusetts Cultural Council, Harvard Bookstore, and First Parish Church in Cambridge. Thanks to all of you for joining us today online. Thank you.